0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at
1: wearelibertarians.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible
0: You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at We Libertarians.com.
2: So, this is the Balls Hogger Liberty podcast with Jeremiah Morrill, Dakota Davis, and Danny Morrill. This is going to be a pre recorded audio uh, phone interview that we did with Robin Miller. He's the uh, racing journalist. Uh, you'll read his stuff on Racer.com, uh, NBC Sports. He covers uh, auto racing, mostly in D car. Uh, and then he uh, had a history with the uh, in the city of Indianapolis, covering the Pacers and IE basketball and the Indianapolis Colts. So this is going to be our interview. It's pre-recorded. First time we've done something via telephone, so it's a little bit different. You'll notice the nervousness in your host's voice. He'll get better at that sort of thing. But uh, enjoy, Robin Miller. So uh, this is the Boss Hog Liberty Podcast. Uh, we have uh, Danny Morrill sitting here with me, my baby brother, and uh, Dakota Davis, my co-host, as always, uh, gentlemen. We got Robin Miller on the line.
1: How's it going, Robin?
2: good fellas I want to be able good to call you, you I want to be able to call you
1: R like JMV does though yeah uh, that was with the.
3: <laughs> that's that's uh, a friend of mine I used to race with in USAC Bobby Grimm Jr whose dad was Indian 500 rookie of the year in 1959 was the guy that first started calling me that's just easier it's, easy, it's just everybody has a nickname and that's the easiest nickname of all
1: it could be a lot worse yeah. <laughs> oh
3: yeah oh yeah well <laughs> Bill Vukovich used to call me Bird Boy, and that stuck for. I got call, I was called Bird Boy all through the seventies. That's hard to live that. That's a tough one to live down. What's
0: the origin of that nickname?
3: Well, just Robin Bird Boy. Oh, so,
2: okay. You know that's, that's obvious. <laughs> <laughs> so our show base is out of Henry County. You're from you're from Anderson originally, and spent some time in Muncie too, right?
3: Well, I was born in Anderson, and then my parents moved to Indianapolis. Gosh, when I was. Like one or two, and then I went to Ball State for two quarters before I flunked out. And let me just say something: you got to work at it to flunk out of Ball State, boys. That's not an
2: easy thing to do. There was a, uh, a the meme running. party that was... school of the Midwest. There was, was a I meme running around Ball State today in with uh, David Letterman, and he said that Ball State was the Harvard of of Muncie. I, I went to Ivy Tech in <laughs> Muncie, so it's like the Ivy Tech of uh, of Muncie, I guess. Yeah, that's the uh, it, it's the the lowest end of the university scale in uh, in Delaware County.
3: Right. <laughs> Letterman was a Rhodes Scholar compared to me at, at Ball State. We used to joke about that because what's interesting is, so Dave gets fired from Channel Thirteen. He's doing the weather, and his, the, his final the final straw was when he said there were it was hail the size of cantaloupes falling in Beech Grove, and they <laughs> fired him on the spot. That's it, you're out. <laughs> he's always making fun of the weather, which should be made fun of. So Jeff Smullen, who owns uh, Indianapolis Monthly. Uh, you know the radio station uh, 1070s fan, um, countless radio and TV stations across the country, his very first station, his father helped him buy a, a, a station that was a religious station. It was an AM station over on the southeast side of Indy. So he hired Letterman to be the 3 o'clock to 6 o'clock drive time guy, and they hired me to do the sports. Now, can you imagine the people that used to listen to that show every day thinking they were going to get some kind of religious uh, uh, you know, they, they were going to be preached to, or they were going to talk about the Bible or the <laughs> scriptures or whatever they want, and suddenly David Letterman shows up at 3 <laughs> o'clock to 6. He wasn't really a big religious guy. So that was kind of a culture shock. So I always, whenever I see David, you know, Letterman comes in four or five races a year. So whenever I see him, he's. We usually get around to talking about his glorious start in radio.
2: You were. Uh You're you're also joined by Dakota Davis here, and he's a a graduate of Tri High Tri High I guess elementary and the high school. Yes, both Uh, in the same building. Now, Tri is the uh, the school that uh, uh, Marion Pierce went to, uh, or he was at Louisville, and that became Tri. Yeah, Louisville, right? He's like the uh, the basketball legend before Steve Alford in uh, in our part of the world. And uh, you know, I I didn't know if you uh, you you had any comments on his career or his history.
3: Well, just. You got to remember back then to score them as many points as he did, and, and it changed during my lifetime. Sometimes freshmen were eligible to play; sometimes they weren't. Then you had the three-point line. You know, when I think about Louis Dampier and Billy Shepard and Rick Mount, Billy Keller, David Shepard, do you realize what even Steve Alford? You do realize what how many points they have scored if they had a three-pointer? So to think that Marion Pierce scored that many points. When there was no nothing but two, but, but two points for a basket, and the, there was you know the games were slowed down, and you know there was it's an amazing statistic that he scored that many points in the air. He did it in
4: right, yeah, Marion Marion Pierce. Uh, we've I've actually gone uh, been vacationing with him a, <laughs> a few times. Like uh, yeah. And you Marion, <laughs> yeah, yeah, wild man. Yeah, yeah he uh basically uh, my my wife's family and uh, and him and his family have uh, the same condo in uh, in Florida and uh, my uh, one of my best friends actually the best man at my wedding his his grandfather is good friends with Marion Pierce and uh, he told a story of one time him and Marion got pulled over and uh, Marion apparently loves to eat uh, like fast food burger joints like it, it's kind of his thing and uh, so Marion gets pulled over on the on the side of the highway, and uh, for some reason the the police officer like had asked to open the door because he recognized Marion, wanted to meet him, and all of Marion's uh, fast food wrappers and everything went flying out the door um, into a cornfield and. Uh, Marion Pierce and this state trooper and my my best friend's grandfather were out in a cornfield chasing down Burger King wrappers and and cups in the in the cornfield. And th- if that's not a better rep- representation of Henry County, then I I just don't know what is.
3: Well, I don't know. I like Mark Dismore's
4: go kart track. That's pretty cool. Yes, it is.
2: Yeah. So Dismore, he's uh he he founded that track out there, and I I don't think locals understand the kind of gem they have. It's it's truly world-class. You know, in September, they have the Road hung out there, and they've had the Dan Weldon tournament, or the Dan Weldon weekend. It's gone away the last couple of years. But, I mean, you've had five or six Indy 500 starters come out there every every year for that thing. It's like an all-star race in the fall.
3: Well, not to mention a lot of Indy guys go there during the season just to stay sharp when, in between races. I mean, there's but, – but Mark Mark was a hell of a race driver in his own right. And, of course, you know, he and his dad started, his dad started the karting business and, and kept it going all those years in Greenfield. So – uh to it's it's really a world-class go-kart track and in henry county so it's i don't know a lot of people know about it but all the you know the people in the industry all all have a high regard for it just because they saw how he laid it out and and he's got every kind of corner you can have and it's it's pretty fast and pretty challenging so that's what that's what that's what it's all about that's what guys want
2: have you had a chance to run out there on one of the rental carts yet
3: no brother i quit racing in 1983 <laughs> and Unless I could go run Kokomo and a midget all by myself some night, I have no desire to drive a go-kart or anything else. <laughs> I raced for 12 years, and that was that was fine. I got to race in USAC when the, in the 70s when all the Indy 500 drivers were stri- still driving midgets. The first time I made a feature at Kokomo, they started 20 cars, I think, and I think 12 of the 20 starters were in that year's Indy 500. So, I mean, it was, you know, I... I I probably, uh, I, I think I was pretty naive, but I was also, you know, there was no, we didn't have Jim Russell schools for midgets or sprint cars. You just, and you had to be 21 years old to get a USAC license back then. So, you know, I talked to Kyle Larson all the time. He he had, Kyle Larson had like 500 A-main sprint car starts by the time he was 17 years old. I mean, these kids have so much experience now, and they're so good. They're so on top of things. I mean, it's, it's, it's like night and day. But what was cool about USAC back in the 70s was, you know, we'd go to an IndyCar race, but we'd have a midget race on Friday night, and then you know, half the IndyCar field was in the midget race. So <laughs> that's why it was popular. D-
1: did you ever run at Mount Lawn? There, just west of Newcastle.
3: No, you know, I never did. I've been to a couple races, but the, they had some core midget races. They had a you I don't think USAC ever ran there, but it was it was always a it was always a place that was it's been around forever and had it it had a pretty good following for a while. I don't know how it's doing. Is it still doing okay?
1: They do some tractor pulls out there now, but it's closed. I lived about oh, okay. I lived about oh, a mile and a half west of there. And every Saturday night it would be a great time. I'd be having a party going on at the house and we'd set up signs in the front yard and people'd stop and honk and it was a really really pretty good time, but going out there and watching people uh, after the races were done uh, take their own street cars out there and daily drivers out there and race against each other side-by-side side is hilarious because I'd hate to have to explain that to my insurance agent on why I <laughs> planted my, my Buick into the wall just on a Saturday <laughs> night at the track.
3: <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> Kokomo used to have, I think it was Sunday nights, it was basically all the – the only rule was you had to have a seatbelt and a helmet, and you could bring anything you wanted on the track, and they'd line 20 or 30 cars up, and these guys would get all – saw stuff and go out and take the old lady's car and destroy it and probably not remember what happened the next day. So it, they finally put a stop to the old spectator races because it was a little too risky. I think the insurance people said, I, I, this is not a good idea.
2: Well, that's pretty funny, though. Yeah, you'd have to put a... Nowadays, I think they at least make put a roll cage in it and, and take the glass out.
0: I I, I worked out at the this... speed... <laughs> I worked out at the Speedway for the PR department. I worked for Jan Schaefer, and he always used to tell me about all the horrible things that Bobby Unser used to do to uh, rental cars, <laughs> bottoms of lakes, <laughs> driving them around Daytona, things like that. What, what is the worst thing you've ever heard a race car driver do to a rental car?
3: Well, Bobby Unser and Alan were in a league of their own. They were, <laughs> They were so... They, they were so destructive that they could not rent a car in the continental United States for three years. So <laughs> uh, what they had to do was they had to say, basically if you were naive enough to not know their history uh, and they'd said, Hey, you know, uh, we really need, we need you to help us rent a car here this weekend. Uh, we'll pay you up front and, you know, don't worry. So they got a couple guys to do it. And probably the worst thing ever was, I think it was Mossport, or San I can't remember which one it was, but uh, a really cool road course in Canada. A lot of windy uphill corners and just a real scenic place. And, and the track was kind of on top of a, almost on top of a mountain. So they got poor old Jerry Grant to rent him a car. And they they were all standing around and nobody had ever seen the track before. They said, well, let's go out and take a hot lap. And so Jerry Grant, they all started running for their cars. And Bobby Hunter took Jerry Grant's keys and threw him 50 yards away. So Grant was the last guy to leave. <laughs> Well, there was a right-hander that was blind, so he went over this right-hander, and it was a, a downhill right-hand turn. It was pretty fast, so Bobby Unser parked his rental car in the middle of the track and got out of the car and ran over to the side of the road. <laughs> and Jerry Grant came across the, came over the bat, came over the hill and going about seventy miles an hour and t-boned and just destroyed both, just destroyed both. Cars. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> and of course, everybody laughed. That was funny. So they got Grant's radiator fixed uh, well enough that they, the thing was. It would at least it would at least roll. So what they were saying was, look, we're terribly sorry. That was a terrible joke. We'll take the car. Let's take the car back. We'll get another rent a car, and we'll, you know, we'll push you. We can push you. We can push you back to the rent a car place, and we'll go slow. Well, of course, Jerry Grant, if he hasn't, it's not traumatized enough, he gets in his car, and the Uncer brothers start pushing him down the hill, and they start going forty,
4: fifty,
3: sixty. <laughs> <laughs> they push him off the hill. He rolls about 40 yards down an embankment a tree stops him I mean he could have I mean, he could have easily died but that was just that was funny they loved it that's the way it
2: was <laughs> high, high risk lifestyle and that's the way you go with so we've got a, a Facebook live stream and we've got questions coming in from people and they' uh, a lot of them are Henry County folks they're asking about who the uh, who are Henry County uh, 500 racers have been or people that have tried and I growing up Danny and I lived on uh, on Messi Road in rural Henry County there's a guy named Dick Fraser who used to bale hay uh, up the road from us, and I think he was a he was an open wheel driver. And I think in the 50, 40s or 50s, he he tried to qualify. Do you know that name at all?
3: I just know the name, but I mean, I I was born in 49, so that's a little before me. The,
2: yeah, you're not Donald <laughs> Davidson. We don't expect you to have have all of no, it. No, I mean, I I got a lot of old pictures
3: of old drivers, and I know the, I know the name Dick Fraser. I don't know if he ever made you or not.
2: Yeah, I think he I think he had heard he had qualified, but never uh, never got there. Another local guy uh, that hasn't had his chance and probably at this point isn't going to is Tracy Hines. I know he had a, a pretty bad accident a couple of years ago and it kind of ended his ended his shot, but he was another one that was in the you know in the Tony Stewart genre and never, never had the opportunity at the 500.
3: Well, here's the thing about Tracy. If Tracy would have been born 20 years earlier, he'd have been a star in, in IndyCar because you had to run the pavement and the dirt, and the guy was a hell of a race star. He was a multi-champion in USAC. Now, a lot of people... He said Tracy was his own worst enemy because he was always saying things he shouldn't. All Tracy was was honest. He 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 would say, well, I've won this championship, I've won that championship, I've won this many races, and nobody's given me a ride yet, so what am I supposed to do? He was just merely stating the facts. I mean, we were at Nazareth once, and he was elite. I think he won the USAC race. It might have been a Silver Crown race. But we were standing on top of his motorhome watching the IndyCar practice, and I said, have any of these IndyCar owners ever come – talked to you, and he just started laughing. He said, they have no idea who I am. So what happened was, when USAC and their infinite wisdom took the dirt cars and made them a separate division and took all the dirt races out of the USAC championship trail, it pretty much killed the career path for all the Tracy Hineses that came along in the 90, 80s, 90s, and today. I mean, unless you've got a rich dad or a, a, a huge sponsor who hit the lottery, you're not going to get a chance. I mean, whether you're Dave Darlin or... And, and Kyle Larson got a chance because... Tony Stewart and I were at Eldora, the 91, the three four-crown races, and, and I told, and Stewart kept saying, I've never seen anything like this. I said, this guy would never seen this track before, and is a tough place to learn because you got to run up against the fence, and it's not easy.
2: I know it won't be this year, but is Kyle going to get a shot at Indy at some point with Ganassi?
3: Nah. Now, it doesn't sound like he's going to get a shot this year, but, you know, he's the guy that people would really like to see run because he's such a complete driver, and he's He's a throwback to the old days of Gurney and Foyt and Mario and Parnelli where you can run. He'll run anything, just like Stuart would, and just like Tracy. I mean, Tracy, you know, he, got, he, had, a, he had a NASCAR truck ride, and it was ter- it was a horrible car. He didn't had, he had have a chance. So that was the only real chance I think he ever got. But if you'd have put that guy in an Indy car and you still had dirt races as part of the championship, he would have been in demand because he was so versatile.
2: Yeah, I think he had a top five at Man. Is it Mansfield? Is that the track up by Cleveland? That they- the short track they used to run at? I think he had a top five up there once, but that's about the extent of his yeah, success but, he had.
3: But for you know, trucks are for towing race cars. It makes me crazy. <laughs> <laughs> really. And then, I mean, I know I'm too old to make a. I'm too old to make a, you know, without being opinionated about trucks
1: racing. But I'm like. <laughs> Please,
2: <laughs> I could get into it a little bit when it was Ron Hornaday, Mike Skinner, and those guys, Johnny Benson. But now I haven't. I couldn't tell you who who runs those things there anymore. I have no concept.
3: Yeah, it's just it's the kind of thing is is that it had a little niche audience for a while. and It's gone away, and, and uh, it, it, what NASCAR the conundrum to, NASCAR is is the truck series is the best racing they have. It puts the, it puts the, it puts the other two to shame. Their races are five times better than NASCAR's Sprint Cup races. I mean, or the uh, – who the hell's their sponsor now? I can't remember. A monster, oh, monster I, for
2: the Cup Series, right, I guess now? Is it Monster Energy? Yeah, – it's, they're, it's, uh, uh, they're almost week to week.
3: <laughs> no, it was uh, –
2: uh, Oh, Camping World. Or, anyway, uh,
3: they just have a lot of – I mean, I don't know how anybody can sit and watch a NASCAR race. How can you watch three and a half hours of commercials – and daryl waltrip rambling on and michael <laughs> waltrip it's just it's it's agony i mean i, I if i watch it it's with the, the with the channel muted i can't listen to those guys and it's they don't race told you know you just you just sit there all day and they just drone around all day and you're like what what is this all about so they tried to put in this these you know they tried to give it some pizzazz last year and they said we're going to have a you know we're going to have we're going to have sections of races and you're going to win a section race and you know whatever who cares it's just it's just throwing darts at a board i think I, I think it's i think nascar i think racing's in trouble period but i think nascar might be in more trouble than they ever thought they were cuz they've lost all their stars or most of their stars and they're not really sure i mean they had about 2000 people last week for the for the race they have every year the the, the pole winners race I mean, there was nobody there. There's nobody there tonight uh, watching the twin races on Fox. So, you know, they're down to 39 or 40 cars. It's NASCAR's got a lot of they, they've got a lot of hurdles to overcome. I think.
0: So, do you think that eventually IndyCar, because the product on track is so much better, and then you know, the Indy, the Indy 500 really seems to be resurgent. It was really kind of a bummer in the aughts, but it's especially amongst the millennial generation. You go out to the snake pit on race day morning, it's just packed. The energy's back. Do you start to see a, an upswing where you almost have the IndyCar surpassing NASCAR fairly soon as the premier racing league?
3: No, no. It, it's there. They out, you know, I work for NBC, and when they got NASCAR a couple years ago. It was it was probably the smartest thing NBC ever did, because all these cable channels, whether it's CBS or ESPN2 or Fox Sports One, they're all looking for an identity. Well, NBC spent a lot of money to get NASCAR, and it's been worth it because it put it put NBC Sports Network on the map. So a good NASCAR race on NBC Sports Network gets anywhere from three to five million people to watch. A good IndyCar race. Like if Long Beach or wherever where one of our better races is Road America, if we get 650,000, that's a really good number. So there's such a disparity, and you know there's still a lot of good sponsors in NASCAR and IndyCar's making some headway in sponsorships this year. They've got some better. But the the average person on the street, fellows, whether in Henry County or New York City or Laguna Beach, California, if you talk to them about racing, they assume you're talking about NASCAR because IndyCar is still a very well-kept secret.
0: Do you, the telecast on NBC Sports, I love it. You guys do such a great job, and I feel sorry for you having to run down the pit every, day, every time, but it's very entertaining, and the broadcast is really well put together. Are they keeping the same crew? Do you know that oh, detail?
2: Oh, yeah. yeah
3: they, the thing is, my boss called me about three years ago and he said, who can we get in the booth to, that's got some personality and some knowledge that people know? That'll, you know I said, Paul Tracy. He's like, Really? I go, Yeah. He'll just you just gotta try Paul Tracy has kind of embraced this. I mean, he I think he really enjoys it. And him and Townsend Bell, it's not contrived. I mean they really do argue about they argue about everything whether at dinner or, or rehearsal or whatever. They're always arguing. But it's it's they're both they're both knowledgeable and they both have passion and that comes across. That's what you want. That's what you want to you know, and that's and Everybody does a good job in the pits, and you know, it's, it's just, uh, you can just tell, Terry Lingner's our producer and director, and he's done racing way back on ESPN, back in the 80s is when he started, so he's really got his handle on, let's watch this race for fifth, or let's do, the, you know, it's not just follow the leader, and it's, it's, it's different camera angles, and it's different features, and it's just, uh, it's the kind of thing that um, we're all hoping that in 2019, NBC has the whole schedule.
2: Yeah, because so you, you guys are they probably up the TV would run six or seven that.
3: races on on national television, which is which is exactly what IndyCar needs.
2: Yeah, looking at the uh, uh you know, I guess this this may be the last year on ABC that there was a big ten year contract that was signed by ABC and, and Versus back in the day and Comcast wound up buying Versus and turned it into the NBC Sports Network and yeah, Spangle exactly right. The the quality of of the broadcast has just been worlds better. You don't fall asleep watching the uh, <laughs> no. watch, watching the NBC guys.
0: And I thought Kevin Lee was exceptional. I don't I didn't know who the British guy you that did, came Kevin back. Kevin did but. a really nice job. Yeah, really
3: nice job. Now Lee Diffie will do all the races play by play because Formula One's not with NBC anymore.
2: Is he over in uh, doing the the bobsled stuff again this time for the Olympics like he did four years ago? I think
3: ago? so. I do think so. So Kevin will be back in the pits where he does a really good job there too. But he did a nice job as play by play. It's just that. You can't fool race fans. They know. And, and it's just like Eddie Cheever and Scott Goodyear are both nice guys. They're both knowledgeable. They're both, they both good race drivers. And they know what the hell they're talking about, but there's no chemistry. And it's almost like they're in a morgue. It's like they don't want to be there sometimes. You're like, I just don't understand. You're, you know, you're getting paid to call an auto race. It's fun. It should be fun. It should be. You, you don't have to scream and yell every lap. I'm not saying that. You just have to have a little energy.
0: We just have to keep Paul Tracy from sharing the Trump memes so he doesn't get fired. That's all. I think that should be your main goal for the next year, so he doesn't well, get any hot water. No,
3: there's no. Uh, it's Paul Tracy. is It's it's tough to keep him in check. You never know what he's going to say. That's why we love him. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> so, Robin, who has been your uh, your favorite personality to cover over your tenure and your career? Oh,
3: I. I probably A.J. and Dan Gurney and Mario and Parnelli, those four guys probably, and Jim Herdebees, who was my first hero in racing, but those are the guys, you know, I mean, I talked to Dan New Year's Day for about 45 minutes, and then he caught pneumonia a couple weeks later and died, and, and I was, you know, I just, I think about how lucky I've been in my this is the 50th year I've covered Indycar racing, and I think about how you grow up and you have heroes like they were my heroes growing up, and I go get their autograph at at the Speedway or Raceway Park or the Fairgrounds, wherever they were running. Then I started working with the Stars, so I started writing about them. Then they all – then we became friends. And uh, I did a column a couple weeks – a couple years ago for Racer. might have been last summer. On July 4th, I just called all four of them up. And uh, on July 4th, and they were all at home, and we just B.S. for about 20 minutes. And I wrote a story about how lucky I was that I could just pick up the phone and call those guys – and we could talk about the old days or what's going on now. And what we're not going to see, and it's nobody's fault, but we're never going to see somebody like A.J. that says what, what's ever on his mind 100% of the time. Stewart was, Stewart's the closest thing I've seen. Tony Stewart was, I enjoyed, you know, Stewart was, he, he was such a, a breath of fresh air for NASCAR because, you know, he didn't care what people thought or respond. He, he just said what was on his mind. He was racing, and if he was mad, then he he let you know it. If he thought somebody was an idiot, he'd let you know it. Well, that's the way racing is. Racing's a volatile sport. It's an emotional sport. You know, you're hanging your ass out there. So, you know, you get mad pretty quick. And and you know, there's not there's not a lot of time sometimes to cool off. It's not like basketball or football where you got a twenty minute grace period. Somebody sticks a mic in your face right after you get out of a car, or right after you walk back from a crash. So I'd say Foyt's probably. You know, I mean, and Mario is the guy that we call whenever anybody has a question about somebody, or somebody passes away, or there's a rule change or there's a date in history, Mario's the most eloquent spokesperson IndyCar racing's ever had. He's also probably the greatest ambassador. I've never seen him turn down an autograph. I've never seen him turn down a, a photo. I mean, he never forgot where he came from, and that's what's so cool. And Parnelli's just the same way. He's he's not around races like Mario is, but um, those guys were still are still legends and still... People are still they're still revered because of what they came through. They came through the most dangerous era in racing. They survived it. They were fabulous race drivers that could drive anything with four wheels. And, and Gurney and I were talking the last time I talked to Danny. He said he, kind of, he felt kind of sorry for the the guys today, like Scott Dixon, who are just you know all they get to run is an Indy car, 16, 17 times a year, and a, maybe a sports car race here and there. But they don't get to go out and race every weekend and something different. He said.
2: He just feels sorry for today's generation of
3: drivers because that's what they
2: missed. Yeah, I mean Gurney, he won he won at Riverside about five times in a stock car. Never practiced or never never ran the full series. Just did that. He ran, you know, he ran Le Mans. He obviously ran Indianapolis, and he was the uh, the only guy to build his own car and win an F one. I mean, it's just it's just there's yeah, no they, one. You'll
3: never you'll never see that again. Never see that again. And that's what I said. That's why I usually go. I usually went out on new on christmas eve i'd fly to la because my sister and my nieces live there and i'd get parnelli and we'd go over to gurney's and have lunch and we always wherever we went people would stop and get their autograph and Parnell used to say well i can't believe anybody knows who we are first of all and secondly i can't believe anybody wants our autograph <laughs> and i said rufus you have no idea what you guys meant to people
1: and that's that's the toughest
3: is? thing now about indycar is scott dixon's probably one of the best drivers of the last 25 years, easily. Great guy, hell of a competitor, probably could drive anything. If he, you know, put him in a mid sprint car, he could probably learn how to do that pretty quick. And he could walk down any street in the United States and nobody has any idea who he is.
2: He gets robbed in the Taco nobody. Bell. That's what happens to Scott <laughs> Dixon now.
3: But I worry about, you know, it's just like Joseph Newgarden. He wins a championship, he's an American, he's well-spoken, the fans love him, he's got a great sense of humor, He's he's... He's a, even though he sounds like he's from Sweden, he's from Tennessee, and <clears throat> since he's won the championship, there hasn't been, you know, they took him to a couple auto shows, but there hasn't been any national TV commercials about him, and there hasn't been any, I mean, it's just, nobody knows who these guys are.
2: Unfortunately, a lot of the sponsorship is business to business now, isn't it? It's not the consumer brands where they're selling Budweiser on TV or McDonald's, right. and it's just you know, I mean, Dixon got the new sponsor this year, and it's a great thing that he's got he's got the bank behind him this this time. But you know, it, it's it's just they're disconnected from what they had been, and having having the first class, you know, in store promotions that they had before. Now you've got a you know a corporate you know, a corporate bank sponsor.
0: And, and do you think it hurts having Elio leave the sport, except for the five hundred?
3: Oh God, yes. I mean, if canon didn't get a ride, you're going to lose your two most popular drivers in the same year. I mean, every year for the last 10 years, Kanan and I take drivers and TR people and (coughs) we go to the state fair one night. So we, you know, we've taken, Will one year we had Will Power, Hinchcliffe, Paginot, Graham Rahal, Connor Daly, and Dave First usually films it for Channel 6 and does a five or six minute stand up and I swear to God, all you have to do is follow us around for an hour and you cannot imagine how many people know who Tony Kanan is. I mean, cops, kids, older people, blacks, whites, Latinos. I mean, we're – you know, I said, "Kanan," I said, "How? how is this possible that you're always – how do these people know who you are? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> so, But it's – and Elio, of course, be, between his personality and Dancing with the Stars and winning Indy three times, those are the two guys that are probably by far the most recognizable people to just the average person. The, so –
2: the two most exciting 500s i've been to uh, and fan response were were the year, the Weldon 2nd win which was obviously because of the turn 4 crash and him crossing the line in a, in a miracle and Kanan winning in it, it, with the KV car he, that was a, unbelievable he's my favorite it was yeah the, the crowd
0: just absolutely erupted when tk won, and i think it's because he just doesn't take himself seriously and he's relaxed and you don't get that sense from a Joseph Newgarden yet where he still has something to prove, whereas, you know, Tony Canaan and Elio Castroneves don't really have a lot left to prove. They're still mega competitors, but they're not, they're more relaxed because they've got more experience.
3: Yeah. Well, and with TK, too, here's the thing what you got to remember is he's, when you've had a career like he's had, and he was kind of becoming the Lloyd Ruby of the Indy 500, he was leading all these laps and never winning the race. Michael Andretti, Lloyd Ruby. Those are the two names that, that uh, all the races that they've won, and you're thinking, okay, it might never happen. And he pretty much resigned himself to the fact that he was always going to be good at Indy, but he might just be snake-bit and never win the race. Hell, Mario only won it once. Look all the laps he led. Mario led one more lap in Indy than A.J. Foyt and won one race. Hmm. A.J. won four. So, but Kanan, winning Indy, just, it just made his whole career, I mean, because he'd been so close and some, something happened to him. So... Uh, but his sense of humor, the way he interacts with fans, same with Elio, and I think uh, actually we broke the story last June, early July. We were in Iowa and, and Marshall Pruitt, who who covers IndyCar racing with me at Racer, we we broke the story about Elio. This was going to be his last season, and I had to go. I had to go find him between practice and qualifying, and I said, "Hey, brother, I know this is a terrible time to bring this up, but I got to talk to." I, I'm going to write a story, and it's only fair that you get a chance to respond. And I said, I hear this is it, that you're going to be a sports car driver full-time next year with Montoya. And he said, Robin, all I can tell you is this. I got a contract with Roger Penske for next year to drive a car. I don't know where, what car, I'm not sure what series, but I'm driving for Roger Penske. Well, that told me exactly what I needed. You know, he didn't he didn't say, oh, that's crap, that's not going to happen. And Roger Penske never, they never really denied it, so we pretty much knew it was true. But the at point of the fans really responded, and they still are today. The fans are like, that's crap, he should be running the whole series. And the other thing is, how many people are mad that Montoya's not running Indy? Because Montoya could still win the Indy 500 as good as he is. He's not that old. Not but he's still off. plenty competitive.
2: Not far off at so, all. So right now, you and, Rob, you, and, uh, you and Marshall have a piece out on racer.com right now, kind of handicapping or, or looking at the field in the 500. Uh, and you're, you guys are coming up with about thirty-four cars right now you, with the uh, with, with Danica slip up and maybe getting a, a fourth coin car for Connor and some other some other possibilities. Yeah,
3: I mean, you know, you when you do this as long as I, you can't you can't write everything you know and you can't burn people to tell you stuff off the record and you can't you got to protect your sources. But you know, you got Sage Karam and Jarrod Hillebrand are going to run for Dry and Ryan Bolt. Servey's going to run Ray Hall's third car. Connor's going to run Coin's fourth car. Danica's going to run Ed's third car. So you're going to have 33. You've already got 33 cars locked in right now, 33. And the last few years, they've been running around in the last week in May trying to figure out how we're going to get enough cars. Let's give this guy a motor. Let's give this guy $200,000. So they're not going to have to do that. And uh, it's a pretty deep field. And um, I, the the real hang-up's going to be people say, oh, it'll be great to have bumping again. And I was, I'm, I'm kind of like, folks, if there's 34 cars there, who cares? I mean, let them all start. That doesn't make any difference. I mean, bumping was when there were 50 cars going for 33 spots. That was the most dramatic, cruelest, craziest day of racing. That's why we had you had pole day, bump day, and race day. You had three different races in the month of May.
2: We haven't had and an exciting bump day since I guess the Andretti cars were so far off, and John Andretti and Danica and, and Ryan. I think Ryan hunter Ray missed it and wound up taking a Foyt car to get in the race. But it's been it's been a decade since we've had a, a oh, real yeah. bump day.
3: Exactly, you're exactly right. It's been ten years. So they came up with the fast nine. That's pretty good. That that's dramatic. That, that that's okay. It's just that it used to mean so much to make the Indy 500. If you were a little guy like Ted Prappas or or Phil Kruger and you worked on your own car all and built it with your own two hands and you put it in the show, that was like winning the race. That was such an amazing triumph for these guys. And and for the last few years, all you really have to do is just show up and you're in the race. So it took away all the. I always laugh when I see you know, a guy talks about how much pressure's on him qualifying in Indy. I'm like, brother, there's no pressure on you. There's thirty three cars, you already got a spot in the race, and you get nine chances to to qualify each day. What what pressure is that?
2: Yeah, the pressures changed where we make uh, Ed Carpenter go out three times to win pole in a in a day, <laughs> you know, in, with well, this new with and this. And it doesn't new pay anything. The risk
3: versus the reward's insane. The Indy five hundred purse is a joke. It's a joke. Two hundred thousand dollars to start the Indy five hundred Hell, your tire bill's ninety grand for the month of May. <laughs> Who the hell? I, I said to Richard Childress a few years ago, I said, why don't you come run the Indy 500? You got a, you're you a Chevy guy. And he said, well, let me ask you a question, Miller. You're so smart. Why would I spend a million dollars to race for 200000 And I'm like, mm,
1: That's a tough I didn't one. really
3: have an answer for that. Yeah, <clears throat> I see what you're saying. Okay. Well, I said, if you got a good sponsor, you could. he goes, yeah, I get Chip," But he goes... You know, he said, if that purse, you know, if it was what it should be, and he's, you know, I mean, the Indy 500 should pay $5 million to win and, and probably pay 500000 or 600000 just to start the race. Then you could give a guy a chance to run the whole season. And maybe somebody from IMSA or somebody from the World of Outlaws or USAC or NASCAR would come field a car for the Indy 500. Because if you could put a sponsorship deal together and it cost you $700,000 and you were going to make six, five or 600000 just for lining up and showing up, then you, then you could justify it.
0: So speaking of the 34th car, poor Buddy Lazier, who I think is really... It's an... time
3: for Buddy to quit, fellas. Yeah. It's not, <laughs> what Buddy's is the a deal? a wonderful guy. He's got a beautiful wife. He's got both arms and legs. You're not going to prove anything. Just Now, his son, Flynn, is a pretty good little driver, and I know they want to keep this team around until the kids... Re- He's not really He's a pretty good little open-wheel driver. It's just that at, at some point, you have to say, okay, this is just... This is just throwing bad money after good. We can't beat anybody. No real reason to do this.
2: So yeah, Dakota Davis is sitting on my left. He is 22 years old, born in 1996. The same year, Buddy won his last Indy 500. <laughs> oh. He's an adult. He's married. Yeah, he has <laughs> a <married laughs> house. That's, that's the truth. So, and I guess they, they're trying to put a body kit together. That, that's always kind of a last-minute effort for them. And hopefully, I guess, hopefully, they keep that team going and they have a shot for to run to run other drivers down the line. But you don't want to turn into Marty Roth, right?
3: Right, and, and and Flynn Flynn was there. I've, I watched him race last year at, a couple times, and he's a good little driver. He's only nineteen, I think, or twenty years old, and he's a hell of a skier. And and so he might have a future in this thing. And they want to they want they know how hard it is to get a ride, so they want to make sure that you know they'd have something for him.
2: So what's Connor Daly's uh, prospects? Is it going to be another Pat McAfee situation with the uh, with the barstool people, or what's his uh, do, do, any idea where his uh, where his funding is this time?
3: Well, I think there's a guy named Thomas Burns that's gonna help me and I think they're gonna have a they're gonna have one of the armed forces that's gonna be one of his sponsors. It's gonna be pretty cool.
2: Very cool. Yeah, he had the patriotic car with McAfee, the Shirts for America thing a few years ago. So obviously he's a he's very becoming a very high profile guy for IndyCar and they need to they definitely need to have him he keeps he keeps advancing on this this reality T V thing he's doing on C B S, so he's got they got they gotta do something.
3: Well he did a good job last year for Foyt in especially the last six races. But when uh, you know, when somebody comes along this like this Mateus Lace and brings three or four million dollars, um, you know, you get bought out from your ride. That's basically what happened to him.
2: That's the way it goes. I mean you were you were Graham McHall's number one uh, number one supporter for two or three years while well, he had the same thing happen to him and it takes it takes time. Ryan Hunter Ray bounced around the series before he finally found a good ride too.
3: Absolutely. Look at Ryan Hunter Ray. He was testing a, he was trusting Robbie Gordon's truck one summer. That's what he was doing. I remember doing a story on him, and he's like, I think my career's probably over. I mean, he comes back and wins the championship, wins the Indy 500, and certainly one of the guys to beat every every weekend. But, like, Graham learned a really good lesson. I mean, he got a, he got a ride right away with newman haas and then it went away. So he had to go out and find sponsorship on his own. So he spent one whole winter just driving around interacting with board of directors and people, and, and he grew up a lot there. And he had a couple of tough years with Ganassi, and everybody said, this guy can't drive, he's just another rich second-generation kid. He's, uh, him and Marco ought to go start their own team, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> well, if you watch Graham when he was nine, I watched him, he started running champ cars when he was 17 years old. And you could tell right then he had it. He could go out and throw a lap together at the end of a session and make the fast six. And it's just been in the last three years where he's really – I mean, racing's all confidence, but he's got some. His crew, his pit stops are good. His engineering department's really good, and he's just—he's, you know, he's driving exactly the way that I thought he would. I mean, I, I expected him to win a couple races a year. I mean, he's contended for the championship in three straight years as a one-car team, boys. That's pretty impressive.
2: Yeah, and they've got a pretty good team put together for next year with uh, with Sato and whatever backing he has. They're gonna—the the, Ray Hall cars have been really—they've been winning practice, weren't they? The fastest in Phoenix.
0: Yes, every session.
2: Every session. Wow.
3: All four sessions. Wow. Graham was fastest in one, and Sato was fastest in the other three. And see, Graham's engineer, Eddie Jones, went to Sato, and then Graham got an ex-Penske engineer, Tom German, who's been kind of in charge, l- looking over the whole the whole team, and uh, they've clicked right away. So you know, it's it's like anything else. Joseph Newgarden, I mean, he had the same engineer with Ed Carpenter for three years, Jeremy Millis, and they won races, and they. And they they made everybody sit up and take notice. Like, are you kidding me? These guys, this little team's out there kicking everybody's butt. That's pretty impressive. So that's what got him his ride with Penske. And when you when you actually see what Connor's been through, he's had a different engineer every every year and different teams and different cars. And the guy can drive a race car. You know, he needs probably a little. He needs to get a little better qualifying at qualifying and stuff. But it's all about. Getting confidence and having the same person that you can trust that understands what you need in a race car—it's not magic. You just gotta, you know. He's, you know, now he'll go drive for Coin in May, and Michael Cannon is one of the engineers, and he really likes Connor, and they and they did really well together a couple of years ago. But you gotta have some continuity; or you don't have a chance.
0: Sato was one of those people that was a surprising. He was surprisingly popular. I've been to twenty six five hundreds out of my thirty four years, and I remember growing up and all these Furners coming in here, and fit Polity sucks. And But Sato, when he won, I was a little nervous about it, but he's been surprisingly popular, and I think you see why when you see his personality.
3: He's just such a nice guy. Plus, I think people remember he 15. went for it on yep. the last lap in the first turn and didn't make it and crashed. But he did exactly what a race driver is going to do at the Indy 500. He's trying to pass Dario to win the Indy 500. I think people... Kind of admires his spunk, you know. He's like, no, no attack, no chance, and he has he has all these different sayings. But <laughs> he uh, he's a, he's a delightful guy, and, and I think what we really don't realize is, is he's such a star in Japan it, and, and and the Orient. It's he he can't go anywhere. I mean, he's a god. You can't even imagine it. So it's uh, he's 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 just you know uh, he's he's represented. Hey, and he's really good about the tradition of the 8500 and how much he likes, you know, the Borg Warner and the milk and all the things. And he's he's you know he's been back here three or four times, just to do things about the tickets and the and the Borg Warner trophy and all that. So I think you're right. I think he was a very popular winner, and you would probably have not thought that five or six years ago. The
2: Japanese fan base is incredible. I met Robin. You and I met at Long Beach, I think, two years ago, and Takuma was driving the uh, driving for Floyd at the time. And there were I, I met a, a fellow, and we did the best we could to communicate. He had flown over from Tokyo, I guess, and he was head to toe in Sato gear, and flew back. He came in for Long Beach, and then he flew back again in uh, in May that year to come to the race. I think he's come back every year. The 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 fan base over there is absolutely rabid.
3: Yeah, I just kind of wish we still ran Motegi because the last time we ran Motegi, it was the first time that. Uh, that, that Sato was in the race, and you couldn't get a ticket. And this racetrack, boys, is out in the middle of nowhere, and you couldn't get a ticket. I've never seen anything like. He had arm guard. He couldn't walk. Ten women are throwing babies at him, and they're all crying. Oh my God! It's Sato. Touch my baby. Oh, this is great. And I mean, you're like, holy cow. This is this is you don't see that very often.
2: So, speaking of Motegi, Danica, she uh, obviously that's where her big win was at. Uh, do you think? Do you think she accidentally slipped up in her interview with uh, with the NASCAR media, or do you think she was? Uh, do you think she was trying to get some some play for the five hundred?
3: No, I think she slipped up because they they had it. You know they they had they had, a, they had a pretty big plan to have a big blown out press conference, even though we, we all pretty much knew it was going to be Ed because that just the way it, it's, it was pretty simple to figure out after you found out the dryer rod bolt thing. That and that, I guess a lot of people still thought maybe that's where she was going, but. Uh, I think the way that I was watching Dave first, and the way that she said it, yeah, she said, "God, I haven't done that before." So, um, yeah, I do think that was a mistake because they wanted to have, you know, and they'll still have a, a big press day. It's not going to hurt it.
2: It, it is kind of neat that it's going to be GoDaddy again. It's kind of coming full circle back to her, one of her, you know, her biggest sponsor in the in the series over time.
3: Well, not to mention. <laughs> It's she's the most polarizing figure. I mean, people who love her or hate her. There's no middle ground. You guys know that. But it's like, how could you have watched this woman run indie and not be impressed that she always did a good job?
0: She was always competitive. <laughs> she was always in the. She was always, you know, top two in what two races? I know she was
2: well, second she and finished,
3: one. I think she finished fourth. I think she finished third, fourth, and fifth.
2: Weldon passed but her. She to was win. always competitive when he won his first race. She was race. competitive
3: at Texas. Uh, her and Tony Kanata were one of the great races of all time for second place at Homestead. And all these people that say she can't race or she can't drive and she's just a pretty face and she's a marketing machine and blah blah blah. blah. Okay. Motegi was a fuel mileage victory. Great. I mean, I, that wasn't one of her best races. That just that was just, you know, just the way it worked. But she's not the first person to win a race in fuel mileage. But if you watch this woman race on places like I just talked her and Sam Hornish and Ryan Briscoe had a great race one night at Texas. I think she, had, she she wound up third, but she led a bunch of laps. People just are they're ignorant. It's like, pay attention here, folks. She can drive a race car. I mean, and she can drive a race car fast. There are certain tracks. I mean, nobody was ever nobody ever thought she was going to do any good in NASCAR. She got she not got she can't handle a big stock car. That's not, that's so far outside of what her her wheelbase is. I mean her her. You know her gun sights have been of her whole career. I remember when she was getting ready to go, and she had finished second and beat Kanan for second at Homestead. And I said, Why would you want to go to NASCAR, where you're going to be one of 28, one of 38 people? You know, and, and here you got a chance to really do something. And she's like, Man, I got to go where there's where I'm wanted, more people. And IndyCar really didn't make a, an effort to keep her, which was kind of sad because how do you let your biggest name get away? And they never lifted a finger.
2: She may lead laps. I don't know if she's I don't know if she's gonna be a win. You know, she's probably not gonna win this race. She's coming in from where she's not gonna win this race. But, but she, may, sure she, she may she lead I'm not,
3: I'm not saying she's gonna lead laps. I'm saying the car's changed. It's a much, it's a much tougher field than when she left the IndyCar series and it's gonna be a struggle. And I, I but I still think it's based on what she's done before. How can people say, Well, oh, what's she ever done at Indy? what's she ever done? She never owned, you know, she won one race, big deal. Pinsky let her win that race, oh, well, you know, oh, geez. it's just like, you can't argue with people sometimes, you just kind of just shake your head and say, okay, you know everything.
0: Yeah, I think it was partly the fact that she was a woman, I mean, there's just there's just no way around it, and uh, you always heard that about Lynn St. James, but I also think that when she was younger and she was around the track, she didn't do herself a lot of favors, and that's sort of always been the, the rap on her, but she was always super competitive, And I think that feeds kind of into it. I mean, I remember when she threw her helmet during qualifications, and it's like everything she did was polarizing. There were people who were like, that shows her competitive spirit. And they're like, oh, she's a whiner. But I think you need that sort of drama, and Uh, I think that's what we talked about with Tony Stewart. You need somebody who is polarizing that makes people feel an emotion as opposed to, you know, just a a nice Canadian boy.
3: (laughs) Well, she's this tiny, pretty little gal that's running an Indy car. She's leading the Indy 500 with inside of 10 laps and the noise that day i've never heard anything like it yep and again that's the kind of thing where you've got to capitalize on that and indycar did a little bit but not nearly what they should have not not they 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 didn't you know sports illustrated cover the first sports illustrated cover in 20 years and it just uh you know it's uh i just think uh I, I just think she's, she's, along with Sarah Fisher and with Simona G. Silvestro. those are the, and Catherine Legg, all four of them have, they were the first, Janet Guthrie and Lynn St. James never raced anybody in the IndyCar. They went backwards. <laughs> they could go fast by themselves. They didn't race anybody. Don't anybody, anybody kid you. They're not even, they should not be mentioned in the same breath with the four women I just mentioned, because those women... Competitive, they passed people on the outside. They took chance. I mean, they were racers, and I think Simona's probably the best road racer will ever that we've ever seen in, in an Indy car. So uh,
2: and they, she she had two fiery crashes in one year and didn't bat an eye. I was I saw her in the pit or in the garage area that with her hand bundled up, she couldn't even see her fingers. She's also but she was still of, running. She's also incre- Simona's incredibly eloquent too.
0: I saw her at media day last year, and she answered a few questions about female drivers that just were stunning. And I think. That's that's the other part of it. These women get women interested in the sport, especially Danica. I mean, w- females were, which last time I checked, were half the population, were really into racing at that point. And, th- again, I think that's why it was a mistake to let her go, like you said.
3: Well, you might not have been able to stop her because of all the money she, that was being thrown at her. I get that. You know, I I mean, I, Sam Hornish made the most sense of anybody. I mean, he won everything he could in We open wheel. I killed, you know, and, and when... And when, uh, and when you think about what he did, you know he's won some. He's won some Bush races or whatever they call it, series Xfinity races. And Sam was a good race driver, but he did. It, it was the timing was perfect for him. For Danica, it was where the money was, and I mean she's made more money than she could have ever dreamed when she was over there in Europe running a Formula Ford when she was 16 years old. See, that's the other thing people don't get. She was by herself without her mom or dad, 16 years old, running Formula Fords in England and in in Formula Ford Festival, which was a big stepping stone for a lot of guys to get to Formula One someday. I mean, she had the moxie that you just – she had a great resolve. And, you know, she uh, she was the first one I ever saw that just had that – she had that package that she could – she was going to kick your ass or she was going to try and and, you know – um, people are like, oh, well, yeah, she kicked a lot. Well, she, believe me, she's, uh, if you look at her finishing record in cer- certain certain segments of, of IndyCar racing, I mean, the tracks I mentioned, she was she she had a really good finishing record at Indy and Texas and, and Homestead and places where you had to go really fast and run close. So NASCAR, look at all the guys in NASCAR that have tried to make Dario didn't do any good. Uh, PT did okay for a while. He got punted a couple times. And, you know, other than Foyt and Gurney and Mario, I mean, we really never had any IndyCar guys do that well. But how many NASCAR guys have won an IndyCar race? Nobody. I mean, <laughs> right. Foyt and Gurney and Mario all won the biggest races you can win in NASCAR. And no NASCAR guys ever come close to winning an IndyCar race. So I want to hear about. It you know, who the best drivers are, that's another argument that makes me tired.
2: Yeah, Stewart's probably about the only crossover, being an IRL champ. I know it was a thinned-out field at the time, but, the, you know, we right, championship right. on both but sides.
3: If Tony would have – if Tony uh, – Barry Green tried to get Tony to, to, to come run cart, and he said no because he was recovering from a broken pelvis, and Barry Green called me and he said, hey, your buddies with Tony Stewart. Tell him I want to hire him. So I called Stewart at his mom's house, and he was laying on the couch recovering. I said, hey, Barry Green wants to pay you a bunch of money to come run – Heart and he's like, man, that's flattering, but I, I'm going to stay with Menard and Tony George, and they gave me a chance, and uh, nobody they gave me my first chance, so I'm going to be loyal to them. And and he was until Joe Gibbs made him an offer he couldn't refuse. I mean, again, if John Menard would have been smart, John Menard's worth $6 billion. John Menard could have said, uh, uh, it, it's just unbelievable to me that, uh, a guy like John Menard wouldn't have said, Okay, Tony, you're the best driver I've ever had. I'll take you to NASCAR someday if you want me to, but let's just let's keep going here with open wheel racing. You know, Stuart would have won the Indy a couple times. So he won Indy a couple of times, was just had to be a stock car. But it's uh it's interesting perceptions and realities of okay. racing, fellas. That's that always just cracks me up.
2: So well, we got just a few minutes left here. You you used to cover back when the uh, back in the nineties you were you were also responsible for uh, for covering some stuff over at the Coles complex. What in the world has happened to our football team in the last two weeks?
3: <laughs> well, I think about when I was a sports columnist, Bill Benner and I were a sports columnist for the Star, so we wrote three or four columns a week. He did the Pacers, and I did the Colts. Well, you know, one year we started out 0-13. One year we were 1-15. Two years we were 3-13. And it was just nobody wore Colts jerseys. Nobody cared. And then Jimmy Ursay got smart and said, you know what? I'm going to go get me a football guy. So I went and got Bill Tobin from the Bears. He got Jim Harbaugh. We almost made the Super Bowl. If there had been instant replay, they would have been in the Super Bowl because Pittsburgh would have never scored one of their touchdowns. But that's another story.
0: I'm still bitter anyway, about it.
3: So you get Peyton Manning, and you spoil this city, and everybody's like, everybody thinks you know, you're supposed to win 12 games every year. Well, that's not how it works. <laughs> it just happened to work because we had Peyton Manning. And then... Chuck Pagano, who I never met, seemed like a really nice guy, but he seemed like one of those guys that was a perfect coordinator. He wanted to be buddies with everybody. He can't be buddies with everybody. And what I like about Frank Reich is the first thing he said was, we're going to have discipline. We're going to be disciplined, and that's that's going to be first and foremost. And I think that was one of the things that happened to the Colts is, you know, nobody was really held accountable, and they stunk the place up. But what people have to remember, fellas, is that Frank can't come in here and turn this thing around. Even with Andrew Luck, as good as he is, we're still not a very good football team. We're we're the fourth-best team in the AFC South,
2: talent-wise.
3: <laughs> oh, it's so it's going to take two or three years for this team to, you know, I, I think Ballard seems to be pretty sharp. Give these guys a chance, but it's a two- or three- or four-year process. That's what people have to remember. And our fans are so impatient because they were so spoiled by Peyton Manning. It's like, no, folks, this is the reality of pro sports.
1: Well, and they're really soft. If you go to any other stadiums and watch games the indianapolis crowd in general is just completely different than a buffalo or a pittsburgh or how they engage with their team in general
0: danny my dad my dad had season tickets from 1984 on and when you go now it's corporate types caramel types you know he in the 80s you had cleveland browns fans barking in my little face scared me to death and my, he would curse and it was so much fun and now, it's just not as much fun because it's so corporate. So, I think losing for a few more seasons might be a good thing to, for the hardness for the up Colts. a little bit. Yeah. It's a soft town, Robin.
1: Robin, how, here's the thing. How were your prop bets for the Super Bowl?
3: Uh, I was I was awesome. I won 11 out of 15, but that was a that was a fluke. Here's <laughs> what you got to remember. I had season tickets for forever when I was covering the Colts. And when Ron Meyer was the coach, I, I remember starting a column saying, as a loyal season ticket holder and Ron Meyer... Call up a ticket manager. Who says, "Does Miller have season tickets?" He goes, "Yeah, he's had four since nineteen eighty
2: four, Coach." He goes, "Damn it!" <laughs> <laughs> so, here's what you
3: got to remember: Pittsburgh, Green Bay, Philadelphia. They sit out in all kinds of weather. They start tailgating at seven in the morning. They start drinking at seven in the morning. There's some obnoxious human beings in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh, boys. Don't ever <laughs> kid yourself. They booed the, the most Pope. Obnoxious fans you will ever meet, but. They'll sit out in those elements, rain, snow, 20 below. Our fans barely come back for the third quarter after they get done drinking.
1: Well, if the, and the roof's open, like, you don't know if you need sunglasses. Why did you buy a
3: ticket if you're not here to watch the game? You can drink any time.
0: At
1: half the used price. used to
3: make me crazy. I just, I'd, watch the people, I'd watch all the empty seats seven minutes go in the third quarter, and there's all these empty seats. And I'm like, where the hell are these people? Why do they come to the games?
2: Final. We're about, about out of time, Jerr. Yeah, we're running down on it here. Well, Robin, I I really do appreciate you taking the time to uh, to to speak with us today. I know you're. Uh, we, we'd love to no, have you in the studio. It's always good but... to
3: have the youth of America that cares about the thing, same things I care about. I I worry sometimes that we don't have very many young race fans anymore. So you guys are going to have to sell it to your vet, your buddies and get them to show up.
2: We're out here. I take uh, my brother Danny and I who's sitting here. We. Uh, we take about 20 or 25 folks to turn three in the infield every year for the race. Some of us have stands, seats in the stands. Some know the race is happening. Some don't. But uh, it's, a, it's a hell of a time.
3: <laughs> well, that's what always happened though, is when you, you know, people that used to go to the snake pit and get hammered and they'd, lay down, they'd watch the first two laps and they'd pass out and they'd wake them up for the last ten, eventually got old <laughs> enough to buy tickets and they became fans. So that's how it works. I get all that. That's fine. I
0: was out in, in the snake pit. Uh, and I was—I worked for a local radio station. I was out there covering it, and I—I I hadn't been out there ever. And I went. It was—it was, it was two hundred thousand, a hundred thousand twenty-year-olds, twenty-one-year-olds drinking, having fun, listening to techno music. And I'm like, this is the greatest idea ever. These kids could give two craps about the race, but in twenty but see, years, the thing. twenty years, they're going to be buying tickets.
3: Well, you hope they are, but I'm not sure that's true because I just don't see the people. I don't see that passion of, let's follow this driver, or let's go drive to Mid-Ohio, or let's go to, let's go to Gateway. I don't see, I just don't see that. I, I just don't, uh, I hope I'm wrong, but I don't think, uh, I don't know. The product's I, so I good, though. I don't see that crossover like I did when I was growing up. I don't think kids care about cars anymore. You guys do, but I just don't think kids do.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. A lot of of 20-year-olds don't even get their driver's license now. I know. It's the craziest thing. They don't
1: even care about driving. I'm like, what? You can't even see the motor on a car anymore. You open up the hood,
2: and it looks like a piece of plastic. Right. Well, we we appreciate you joining us, Robin. This is uh, the dream come true for me. Uh, Follow you on uh, racer.com, NBC, and uh, on the Facebook, I suppose.
3: That's great. We, uh, we, We take any and all callers. That's right. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Very cool. All right. Well, we uh, we appreciate it, and uh, we're going to send folks your way. Thank you, Robin. Thanks, Robin. Hey, okay, guys.
3: Good talk to you. Thanks. Thanks.
2: All right. Very good. All right. Great time. Not bad, huh? No.
0: I, I really love Ron, Robin Miller. He's one of my heroes in town. I've been a race fan forever, and somebody who's been in media you know, I I look up to Robin because he just says it like it is. And somebody said on the thing, "Hey, I don't even f- like racing, but this dude's really entertaining." And it's just because he says exactly what he thinks, and I think we need more of that. Yeah, that's that's exactly what
4: I thought. Uh, you know, Jeremiah sent a, uh, in a in kind of like a group message a bunch of different podcasts that he'd been on. Like, listen to how this uh, how Robin does a. Uh, all of his different interviews, whenever he goes on podcasts and he goes on different radio shows, and the things that he does, and uh, he, I, he's super entertaining. Like yeah. it, just sitting here listening to him was it was awesome. He does such a good job.
2: So he is uh, Robin's battling cancer. He mm. uh, it's no secret. It's about out there in the media that he's he's fighting that, and he's uh, he's he's looking. F- uh, the racing community is trying to support him. So he mentioned Marshall Pruitt, who works with it uh, at Racer. Uh, they are going to do a sticker drive, so if folks are listening want to help out, kick in towards his uh, towards his costs. Uh, all these guys are independent contractors, so they don't have the uh, you know they don't have the full time paid go to the factory job like everybody else does. They yeah, this stuff together. So th- th- through Marshall, they're going to be selling some stickers, and if uh, folks that are listening can uh, can help that out. Uh, we can definitely try to support him in uh, in his recovery.
0: The racing community. I mean, when I I worked out there for the PR department from 2004 to 2009, and that was a very transitionary period for a lot of people from, you know, the boomer generation over to more of the millennial reporters. But you had a lot of people. ESPN was shedding jobs. The speedway was shedding jobs, and you had a ton of reporters following not only the series but racing in general. And then the jobs just became less and less and less. And along with that went health insurance. And so a lot of these guys who just have been involved in the racing community are looking, are are getting older and and including several of my friends. And you just go, oh, because it's not easy because they're the original gig economy folks. And that's what a lot of people are not aware of is that people who work in racing are gig economy people. They go from team to team to speedway to series back to team and they you know, and along with that, it's a very transitionary job. So uh yeah. He he is one of the most um interesting personalities in racing in history. He is somebody that drove Tony George and the Speedway crazy because he would say the truth as opposed to whatever the Speedway wanted them to say. And uh just love Robin Miller a lot. So yeah, if you're a race fan, you definitely want to get one of these stickers and support him because uh, he's a great guy Really nice guy He took an hour Out of his time To talk to To the four of us To, to yeah. us And the fans
1: And we, we do appreciate him right. Very much Yeah. Uh, well and also, he would have Talked for another hour I don't think with, yeah. without, without a problem Yeah So Oh easily Great guy I know I like that you started out The
0: interview with Marion Pierce Who? What yeah. is this podcast Every time I come on The Boss Hog I go What is this podcast Marion Pierce
2: Marion Pierce is the Number one basketball <laughs> number He's two. the number, one, number two Scorer in the history Of Indiana High School Basketball I guess that's a Newcastle thing. I'm from Plainfield where it, we have it's a Louisville thing. Okay. Last night we had Tom Saunders on who's the stair presenter from Lewisville, Indiana. Right. We started with a Lewisville reference. We are courting the try high audience like you've never seen. <laughs> that is the key that's to right. victory in podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> well you guys are doing you guys are doing great work.
0: Uh, how much longer do you want to do this show before we go over to the We Are Libertarians show?
2: We can uh, we can call it quits here. We appreciate okay. everybody listening. We'll uh, we'll we'll end it here. Uh, and uh, next Thursday night we've got uh, Steve Horwitz noted economist Dakota's yes. going to take the lead on that one because I, yeah, I know I'm, he's a brilliant guy, but Dakota is the fanboy.
4: Yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to Steve Horwitz and I kind of I kind of mentioned uh, this on the way over, although I use Jordan Peterson as kind of my reference right um, but I I, I listen to a, a lot of Steve Horwitz. I, I read basically everything that he puts out. I think he's a, a, a really smart person.
0: I really enjoy everything that he does. Love it. I love his wife, Sarah Squire, is a great human being, and she's also a very accomplished libertarian thinker herself. That's awesome.
4: Yeah, but uh, one of the things that I'm nervous about, Chris, and uh, you know, you've obviously on We Are Libertarians, you've had a lot more experience with uh, with people than what I have coming yeah. through, and uh, one of the things I'm nervous about is just I I don't I don't even know how to ask a person at that level questions. First you know of all, I mean?
0: you you mentally you have to go you're not we're not on the same level. We're on the we're on the <laughs> same level. You know what I mean? Like you guys I could tell and this is why I hate doing interviews. We are libertarians which we're going to do the We are Libertarians episode right after this on the We are Libertarians page. We're going to talk about the uh, the shooting. But I don't like to do interviews because of the nerves that Jeremiah was having this before it. This
2: is the it. very first time I've done a telephone interview. This is episode right. 44 of Boss Hog. Right. the very first time we've done telephone and we had I don't know about four minutes to put it together to get yeah. the, to get the data working, and that was that. Not it's, it's nerve. You know how I like to plan. I, I know.
1: drove really fast. That wasn't on me.
2: Yeah, no, it was. <laughs> there was a whole cat incident that Spangle oh may or may not get into uh, my, on his show. My but poor was, kitty it got her was head terrifying.
0: stuck. Yeah, my I, yeah. my heart was breaking. I don't know how I could no, ever be a parent.
2: But I'm not.
4: I'm not talking about in as in a level on a on a personal level. Sure, but I'm I mean,
0: just solely based on intelligence. Well, and you, yeah. Uh, so. I don't know because I I'm of moderate intelligence myself, uh, <laughs> but I think you just kind of have to stick to your guns a little bit because I think he unnecessarily picks on Jordan Peterson and I think uh, why is a good question. Yep. And you know he, he he is he does it unnecessarily. He is he is, but he may have a a, a point of view that we just haven't heard anybody talk about yet. You know, and he was very much uh, abused for no other word of he was abused by the alt right. So I could see how he would have a chip on his shoulder by any yeah. uh, against anyone that was admired by the alt right because the way that alt right libertarians treated Steve Horowitz was absolutely atrocious. Because he's a good dude, as far as I can tell. So,
4: yeah. and that's one of the things—a little Easter egg before we leave. Um, I guess one of the final things is that we're going to get into because uh, you know i i really enjoy listening to jordan peterson he had steve had like what what, four statuses on facebook right in a row just criticizing over the months yeah Yeah. he's he's you know criticized jordan peterson and as well as his listeners and his followers and i kind of want to get into that with him because i you know i don't know what he thinks but i would really i would be uh, i'm really interested in hearing any criticisms that he has about him right
2: well very good i appreciate everybody listening following us uh... BossHogLiberty.com, like, subscribe, hit the YouTube channel, all those fun ways, and uh, we will catch you all Thursday night with uh, with Steve.
0: Thank you for listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Get our other shows at WeAreLibertarians.com.